The following podcast is brought to you by the Village Zendo. For more information, visit villagezendo.org. Well, uh, good evening, good morning, good night, wherever you are in the world. Um, my name is uh, Daishi, and I'm speaking to you from the Netherlands this evening. Um, it's always so nice to see familiar faces on the screen late at night here and um actually a lot of new faces this evening which might be because you're in new york and i'm over here or it might be because you're a new face i'm not sure but um it's it's nice to see you too um you know and it was such a pleasure to be able to um to practice with some many of you uh in person a few weeks ago um, part of me still feels like I'm <clears throat> practicing with you on those those creaky garrison center floorboards. It was, um, you know, it was a very busy time uh, for me before this year of year end session, um, and it was a bit of a dance to get there. Lots of um, coordination and planning and planes and trains and buses, you name it. Um, you know, and one of the main things that I noticed upon arriving at the Garrison Center was that on a certain level, I, I really didn't know how I was feeling. And uh, I wonder if you know that feeling when you don't really know how you feel because you haven't stopped to feel uh very much of anything and i think this 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 disconnect or as i talked about in my last talk this distance is the product of um distraction uh different kinds of efforts karma inevitability um so while I try not to have any kind of grand expectations for practice, I did hope that session would live up to its name and gather the mind. Um, you know, I felt fairly certain that no matter what service position I had or what issues arose on session, the container that the village Zendo is so skilled at creating would allow me to settle. Um, and it did. So I want to, to thank everyone who put so much effort into making this last, this last retreat happen. Um, so if I had any session goals, I guess, you could say, I just wanted to see how I felt and then function with all of you. Um, and I was, I was so pleased to be greeted at the door by um, Kanan, maybe even more than Layman Pong, the, the protagonist for this Ango study period, Kanan, the, the Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of compassion, seemed to have signed up for the whole the whole retreat. Um, and Kanan is sometimes referred to as the energy of seeing and hearing the cries of the world. Um, you know, and through our forms, zazen, slow kinhin, interviews, 
um, through my position on retreat as part of the liturgy team where where listening and watching moment to moment is so essential. Um, through the, the wonderful Dharma talks and many other kind of forms and gestures, I felt very encouraged to, to just listen and see what arose kind of moment to moment. And I've really come to appreciate the strength of just listening, <laughs> um, how the act or energy of, of bearing witness is fundamentally liberating, not because of, of what comes before it or after it, but, but, uh, but what unfolds through it. So, so how was I feeling? Um, it was, it was a very peaceful and strong retreat for me. And, um, you know, there were, there were a few old visitors that came to me with new twists that I thought might be worth exploring this evening. Um, you know, of course, there were all kinds of comings and goings, but I will say that a kind of hazy feeling tone, um, lingered on this retreat for me. It wasn't, it wasn't particularly loud or overwhelming or dramatic, just this vague sense <laughs> that, that something might be wrong and that that something might be me. Um, if the feeling could speak, it might sound like you're a piece of shit. And it wasn't, again, it wasn't very loud or aggressive, uh, but it was persistent. And, you know, it would have been easy to kind of blow it away, shake it off, uh, distract myself, uh, pretend it wasn't there, um, bring something else to mind, mangle it with interpretations. Um, and I've done these things a thousand times. But in Zazen and on session, the invitation is different. Um, and I try to accept that invitation to just listen and see what arises and how what has arisen then shifts. Um, you know, and I don't know how this all sounds to you so far. <laughs> I can see how it might sound concerning. But maybe that's part of why I really wanted to share it, because it wasn't anything to be concerned about. It was it was really OK. Um, you know, I've experienced this kind of voice uh, expressed towards myself and towards others when it wasn't OK, um, when it was believed as some kind of, you know, immovable truth. Um, but within this session, and, and Lord knows it could be different, um, that it will be different next time, but this voice of, you know, Daishi, you are insufficient. Uh, it wasn't so much a problem as this wild opportunity. <laughs> um, and it sounds ridiculously simple coming out of my mouth, but to just feel what I was feeling. 
And, you know, I think one of the trickiest traps of life practice is thinking that it's right if it feels good and that it's wrong if it feels bad. This is, this is not to say that accomplishments and competencies um, can't or shouldn't be experienced as pleasant, but, but most of the most meaningful relationships and experiences I have had um, came with significant discomfort. And this point I'm trying to make isn't about calling um, black, white. It's not about um, a kind of Zen gaslighting yourself into thinking that pain is pleasure and um, that a, an abusive, inconsiderate comment um, is just a, a delusion and that uh, an enlightened stance is to kind of feign some kind of notion of equanimity. It, it isn't that, but I really feel like I'd be selling our practice and my experiences of our practice short if I didn't acknowledge its power to make pain not pain. And, and what do I mean by make pain not pain? To make, you know, Daishi, it's too late. You aren't going to be anything into not that. Um, I think the Zen invitation is to take refuge in your awareness, the teachings and precepts, uh, your friends, and ultimately to, to be intimate with, with whatever arises. And so as I was sitting with this quality that I may be the problem, I had the opportunity to contemplate kind of how, how ancient this voice is, <laughs> how it reincarnates at different life stages with different tones. And um, most unexpectedly, I ended up sitting with two very old friends who showed up for session um, who knew that Biggie Smalls and Cy Twombly had signed up for the entire winter uh, retreat. For those of you who don't know, Christopher Biggie Smalls Wallace was a Brooklyn-based uh, rapper from the 1990s who is widely recognized as one of the greatest MCs of all times. And Cy Twombly was an American uh, post-war artist, best known for large-scale canvases with this, his own distinctive kind of graffiti meets scribbles meets calligraphy-like gestures on them. And, you know, every day in the dim pre-dawn zendo, Biggie would be rhyming in a corner practicing one song over and over again. It was this relentless practice of an old favorite, one that I listened to first when I was 16 years old, when it immediately took up residency in my mind, and to this day comes regularly out to play. The title is called Suicidal Thoughts, 
It is the last track off of Biggie's debut album, Ready to Die. It samples Miles Davis's Lonely Fire. And it is the shortest song on the album. It's less than two minutes. It has no chorus. It has no hooks. It is just 32 bars petitioning the listener with would-be last words. Sober, painful, confessional rhymes. And the track and the album end with the MC taking his own life. Biggie, uh, he was 21 when he recorded Ready to Die. And he was 24 when he was shot to death. He was killed um, 16 days before his sophomore album was released called Life After Death. And when I was a teenager, I remember that I would only listen to this track when I was alone, afraid that my friends and family would think it was too dark. Um, a little bit how I feel now sharing this with you. <laughs> uh, even though, you know, every time I listened to it, I felt a kind of strength and authentic authenticity being transmitted. And, you know, I cite this song with widening my view and kind of deepening my appreciation of what feelings um, could be touched, uh, explored, and, and transformed through authentic expression. Suicidal thoughts, the piece of art came through, but is not suicidal thoughts. Much like you're a piece of shit, cooked in Zazen may emerge in a footstep of Kinhin, a stitch in an orphan dog's comforter. Um, the song for me is a very powerful expression of how we can use every ingredient in our life to make a meal. And Sai Twombly was more inconspicuous. He's harder to spot. Occasionally he'd miss a period of Zazen, uh, not so much aloof as alone with himself. He worked on a series of paintings uh, or drawings. And when I first saw this work that I sat with for much of retreat, I was in my now early 30s, and I almost laughed. I just how dare someone feel that way? Be so bold and beautiful. I had um, I had just gotten married, uh, completed some graduate work, written some strange things, and was hooked uh, by Zen practice. And it felt like a quickening phase of life, like just like it could all go very quick, <laughs> uh, and that I was just being kind of still blown blown around by by my and other people's whims agendas uh and expectations uh i really i wanted so much to just be me <laughs> to to have a life or to vow towards a life that would make me free uh 
um, really just all the way free and full of authentic expression. But I was also just quite sure that I wouldn't be able to do that. And Twombly's image, just this mature commotion, scratched out color, graffitied abstractions, this beautiful mess that felt disrespectful to ideas, but very reverent to direct experience, just spoke to me immediately. Um, but it wasn't until I glanced at the caption of this particular series and um, saw that the title of this piece, uh, when I saw the title of the piece, that I really felt broken open. Um, the series is called Scenes from an Ideal Marriage. And I just didn't know that ideal could look like that. I didn't, I didn't really appreciate that it could feel like that and be perfect. Uh, and I think there's just real freedom in knowing that one's life, uh, one's vows and aspirations, they have to be hazy in the present. They're only clear in the rear view mirror. Your, your, your life can't look like anything that has ever been done before because you haven't been done before. This is your life and it is utterly your own. Um, and now, you know, just as always, it's different again. Um, someone older again in, in less of a violent kind of confrontation with myself and others most of the time and settled into and enriched by a vibrant set of ideal marriages to my family, to Zen, to artistic and scholarly practices, to all beings. And yet, here I am listening to that old voice whispering something new yet again. Um, and it turns out that it was Ling Chao, Layman Pong's daughter, whispering these difficult but timely cases in my ear. Um, so in the text we're reading for this Ango period, the sayings of Layman Pong, I was I was very struck by the relationship that he had with his daughter, Ling Chao. Um, frankly, she seems amazing to me. She's spontaneous, bright, strong, insightful. Um, and I felt like their dialogues demonstrated this tremendous amount of maturity and shared respect for one another. And while Zen has this vibrant history of and respect for lay practice, I haven't really read much on parenthood. Um, and so it was that much more sweet to see this relationship between Layman Pong and his daughter Ling Chao in the text. And, you know, at the risk of being just too simplistic and of stating the obvious um, all at the same time, uh, caring for parents 
caring for children and caring for ourselves um, as we inevitably encounter old age, sickness, and death is the hand we've all been dealt in one way or another. And um, while caring provides so many opportunities for connection and waking up, it's also can twist itself into all manner of blame and shame. And this was the new tone to the old feeling that I was sitting with. How, how dare you die? And how dare you fall in love with things that die? Uh, the the 55th case in our study text, the layman's death, I think touches on these issues in a, in a really wonderful way. Um, so in this case, layman Pong is dying and he calls his daughter Ling Chao and asks her, as the day turns from morning to night, can it be said when it has reached halfway? And she steps out into the garden, takes a breath and says, it is midday, yet there's some obscurity. So what is Layman Pong asking his daughter? As birth turns into death, can you show me that which is neither born nor dies? Where, where do the absolute and relative intermingle? Uh, and also, and importantly, I think he's saying, I am dying. How are, how are you doing? <laughs> how are you doing, my love? And Ling Chao steps away from her father's bedside off a 100-foot pole and becomes the midday. She seems to say, uh, look, it's all perfectly present right here. Birth, death, no birth, no death. I'm, I'm okay. And yet, there is some obscurity. And here, it's, it's hard not to bring up another very famous Zen and yet, uh, Kobe, Kobayashi Isa, a great haiku poet um, who suffered a lot of tragedies in his life, um, perhaps none worse than the death of his young daughter, for whom he wrote the following. This dewdrop world is a dewdrop world, and yet, and yet. Ling Chao's and yet arises from the death of her father. Issa's and yet arises from the death of his daughter. And yet, both Issa and Ling Chao stand in the midday. Layman Pong stands up, looks outside, and sees Ling Chao sitting in meditation but she's died. And the layman laughs and says, my girl has fitted the arrowhead to the shaft. So who dies? 
And who leaves when death arrives? When you die, are you leaving everyone or is everyone leaving you? There's a, an earlier case where Layman Pong falls down and Ling Chao immediately falls down right next to him. And Lei Pong says, what are you doing? And Ling Chao says, I'm trying to lend a hand. Ling, Chao, Ling Chao and her father are not two. And the layman says, but who can see what there is to take hold of? What is there to fix? And it's, it's hard not to let out a little laugh um, at this wonderful, precious life. A week goes by, and Layman Pong's friend, Governor Yu, comes to check on him, and Pong recites a verse. Our hollow desires comprise what is something. The awareness that has no substance comprises what is nothing. A good day in the world is but a side effect. A good day in the world is but a side effect. So here's my closing gata sitting with all of you and biggie and twombly layman pong and ling chow chase two little boys soon to be young men through the zendo stepping on fresh paint leaving their midday marks who feels bad about this it's so odd this goodness Thank you.